Welcome back to Behind the Wings, a podcast produced by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum in beautiful Denver, Colorado. We've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, up-close looks at iconic aircraft, and on today's show, we're going on a field trip to Honey Bee Robotics in Longmont, Colorado, where we got a behind-the-scenes look at the manufacturing of key components for NASA's Artemis mission. It's time to go Behind the Wings. All right, friends, we've made it to episode 26, and we're so glad to have you along for the ride. Now, make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcast app. You've done that, right? Okay, so do it. And if you like the show, consider leaving us a rating. It's the best way for new people to discover the show, and we really do appreciate it. We've explored the Artemis program on the show before. If you missed those episodes, go back and give a listen to episode 10 to hear from an Orion spacecraft engineer. And episode 21 is we compare Apollo and Artemis with former NASA astronaut Harrison Schmidt and historian Dr. Teasel Harmony Muir. I'm your host, Rick Crandall, and with me, as always, is Wings Over the Rockies President and CEO, John Barry. John, what do we have for folks today? All right, Rick, on today's show, we're getting an inside look at the design and development process of Honeybee Robotics as they build a key component for the Orion spacecraft and a new lunar drill. Orion is the first spacecraft capable of bringing humans on long-duration missions in deep space and is the capsule that will bring humans back to the moon on Artemis III. Now, for history buffs, that will be the first time humans land on the moon since Apollo 17, which was in 1972. My goodness, how long ago was that? Artemis is a new program with a new mission, and while the Orion capsule looks very similar to the Apollo capsule, inside and out, it is full of new technology, as you would imagine, to enable this new mission. Our guests today are Andrew Maurer. My name is Andrew Maurer. I'm the Director of Systems and Mechanical Engineering here at Honeybee. And Isabel King. So my name is Isabel King, and I'm a Technology Development Engineer here at Honeybee. Now, don your bunny suits because we're excited to bring you inside a clean room and experience firsthand how space hardware is made from prototype through manufacturing. And stay with us for the second half of today's show. We're going to get up close with a next generation lunar drill planned for use on future Artemis missions. There's a lot to learn in this episode. All right. This is my Ms. Frizzle moment. Let's hop on the magic school bus. Deep within the walls of Honeybee Robotics, we're going inside the labs. Oh, this one is going to be cool. You know, this is exciting for us. Normally, we're inside the podcast studio, but today we're in the field. We're big time, I guess. Before we get into the manufacturing tour, let, let's start with the big picture. Why is space exploration important in the first place? I think exploration, of a sense, is in human DNA. As a, as a species, we need this outlet, and uh, you know the moon is right there, and yet so far away for us. It's a compelling target. Isabel, what's your take? Space exploration is important because uh, it teaches us about the origins of life and the origin of the solar system and who we are. And so many amazing technologies have also come out of 
designing for the harsh environment of space. So there's so many technologies that we have on Earth that benefit our life day to day that were created because of the creative challenge that is involved in designing for the space environment. For me, space exploration is just so much about knowing what's out there. I mean, what, what is it made of? How did we come to be? What else is in our solar system? Is there life elsewhere? Even though we have some of these answers for the moon, it's very important to go there first so that then we're able to go further in future missions. You know, in this conversation, uh, the moon is a compelling target, as we all know, all know at about 239,000 miles from Earth, where Whereas Mars is about 235 million miles from Earth, almost a thousand times further than the moon. That being said, uh, we've been to the moon before, as we all know, in the late 60s and early 70s. So what can we learn from going back? The truth is there's, there's so much to do there that we didn't do. Without going into why we went the first time, you know, this time everybody's looking at maybe we're going to stay. Maybe we're going to exploit resources that exist on the moon. It really is this time we're going back to conduct the normal range of human activities there. There's private industry that wants to be on the moon. There's, you know, government, there's science to do on the moon. We want to do everything this time. So it's about what we will do there, you know, in the South Pole. But it's also about where we will go, right? Yeah, so during the Apollo mission, most of the landing sites were really right at the equator. And that's because uh, it's a safer landing area, a lot easier to land, and because it's a more temperate climate. So temperatures perhaps a little more predictable. This time for Artemis, we're going to the South Pole of the Moon, which is really exciting because it's a totally new frontier. We've never been there before. And we also think that there's ice there, which is really significant for this time being able to stay on the Moon. Water ice on the moon would certainly be a game changer for what's possible on the lunar surface and even for deeper space exploration. We're, we're going to come back to Isabel uh, when we talk more about lunar sampling on the moon and this new lunar drill, so stay with us. But let's ground ourselves a little bit here with the complexity of Artemis and what it takes to manufacture all the various components. There are 29 countries, right, signed on to the Artemis Accords, some of which are contributing key pieces for the mission. And according to NASA, there are more than 3,800 suppliers who come together to make all this possible. Honeybee is one of those companies. So tell me this, how, how do you see the landscape across the industry to, to make this complex mission possible? Uh, it is an extremely complex endeavor, what we're trying to do here. It's, it's frankly where the, the term moonshot comes from. You know, initially on Apollo, it was this, this huge thing that uh, everybody had to work together. And that's, that's in the blood of our industry. Um, there's very few examples of, you know, just one company uh, accomplishing a mission like this. And, you know, Artemis, at least from what I've heard, is even more elaborate than typical. There's lots and lots of uh, vendors and, you know, mid-sized small businesses like Honeybee that are involved. You know, we've done a lot of podcasts, but sometimes people get confused about the difference between Artemis, the program, and Orion, the spacecraft. So help us unpack that and, and the work that you are doing here at this facility to actually manufacture components for the Orion spacecraft. Of course, Artemis is the mission and Orion is the vehicle, the capsule. Here at Honeybee, we're making uh, the side hatch gearbox. Side hatch, of course, being the entryway on the side of the capsule. And our gearbox uh, is on the inside of the door and it's, uh, it's basically like the doorknob that the astronauts use when they want to actuate the door open and closed. So we're talking about a door and specifically a doorknob, as you called it, which 
can sound like a minor piece, but what I love about this example is how it illustrates the attention to detail that goes into building the spacecraft, the SLS launch system, the gateway, the lunar lander, and all the components that come together to make the Artemis mission possible. Now, I can't wait to do our walkthrough and see all the steps that it takes to design and build this thing. So. I got an idea. Let's start by diving into the design phase. All right. So when designing a crewed spacecraft, it needs to be designed for humans, in, in this case, astronauts. How do you think about the human interaction, the ergonomics, if you will, as you start the design process? Making sure that our hardware works for astronauts is, of course, a huge deal. It's, a, it's one of the primary engineering focuses um, in the design phase. And NASA is a big help with that. They have a lot of specifications that they gave to us that says, you know, typically, you know, a, a gloved astronaut hand needs a, a shape this large to hold on to. Handles should be this big to pull. Um, and that gets us pretty far down the process. But then on top of that, there's a lot that astronauts know about being in space and the, the challenges of being weightless and trying to, to work. And so we, we got their hands on our gearbox um, in the prototyping stages, and they had a lot of really interesting feedback. They're like, well, this handle, you know, it could rotate smoother. That would be a help for me. Or, you know, these latches, I feel like it's a little slippery, or it could have, you know, a, a feature that helps my finger grip it. And, uh, you know, there's no substitute for experience there. Our job was really to, to listen and then to make them the best gearbox we could. You know, testing and prototyping are so important. I think that's generally known because something like the Orion crew module, the side hatch, or really most of the components for Artemis, they need to work every time. Now, the part I've been looking forward to as we walk through here is we're in the engineering lab. Walk us through what happens in here as a first step to make something that will actually be used in space. So we're here in our engineering lab. This is where our development process frequently starts. We'll take a, a customer spec and try to test out our designs and ideas. We'll start on a 3D printer. We've got all of these running here, uh, making various parts that we want to see, you know, how they're going to perform in a real assembly. From there, uh, we'll go to more elaborate prototyping efforts. We'll start making fixtures and prototype pieces out of metal or whatever materials we need. The way we use prototyping is we'll uh, design a mechanism in our heads or on paper or in CAD um, that we think is going to work. But there's always questions about uh, if the parts are going to go together, if they're really going to work the way that we think they will. And it's a pretty big investment for us to just dive in with a design um, in our flight materials uh, if there are outstanding risks. So we'll do um, rapid prototyping of all kinds. Uh, here we've got 3D printers working. This one, for example, uh, is printing out a connector bracket that uh, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to properly route wires through. This one's building a, a rod end that we wanted to see uh, how it was going to integrate with the final assembly. But we'll do even more complicated stuff like prototyping, uh, gearing, or uh, motors assemblies, um, all here on plastic for starts. The first instances of a product will usually be a 3D printed version. So that's kind of the first step on its way to the moon. I'm seriously getting goosebumps, and I know it's a podcast, you can't see them, but trust me, I've got goosebumps. For our listeners who can't see what's happening, we've got several 3D printers running here and one layer of plastic at a time. They're, they're building these prototype pieces right before our eyes. 
Oh, nothing like this when I was in school. As you said, with each prototype, these components are one step closer to the moon. So, after prototyping, what's next? You know, after probably almost six months of that to get us to our preliminary design stage, then we're looking at, okay, we have a design that we have some confidence in. We want a higher fidelity model to get our hands on and to further ensure that it's still gonna work. So then we'll build an engineering model or an uh, engineering development unit with somewhat flight-like materials. Maybe we compromise in order to build it faster or cheaper to get our hands on it. We gotta go around, right? We don't have yeah. visitor coats here. So we're here in another part of our engineering lab and we're looking at the next step in our development process, which is we'll build a engineering development unit or EDU, which is as close as flight to we can make it um, while still allowing us to test certain things out. And so ultimately, uh, another reason we do all of this is because space is hard, and so we always learn something we didn't expect when we build an EDU. And then as the design matures, we take the, the experience with the EDU, we incorporate all of that into the design, and then we're ready to do flight manufacturing. So that's a look at what happens here in our engineering lab during the development phase. Uh, next stop will be the machine shop, where we actually start to cut metal. Okay, so that was prototyping, we saw that. Now we're in the machine shop. What happens in here to take it from the plastic prototype to metal? So here we are at one of our CNC milling machines. We've got a part in here being manufactured. We went from plastic in the engineering lab to stainless steel here in the machine shop, and we're one step closer to flight. We're moving fast, but with the Artemis program preparing for its second flight and first mission with crew on board, production's underway. And Today, we're seeing that in real time with the Orion side hatch and the doorknob. For this next part, we're heading into the clean room, which means time to put on the bunny suits. Uh, also known as clean room suits, but that's not near as fun as bunny suits, which help keep the room, well, clean. Believe it or not, humans are some of the dirtiest things in a clean room, probably the dirtiest. And with the precision engineering happening in here, the cleaner, the better. There is a dress code in here. All right, John, so first time I've worn a bunny suit, it, we're, I don't see ears. All right, we better figure this out because it's never gonna let us in there if we don't have this thing on properly. All right, I'll find the ears. Okay, so we've got our uh, design and our machining done. So we come in here to our main production facility. Obviously, we're in a clean room, um, which is why we need to wear these special uh, coats. But this is where we're going to finally start putting the components for our Artemis hardware together. So we've built gearboxes up through Artemis 4. Um, we're going to be building more all the way up to Artemis 8. It's a huge undertaking. There's over 300 parts just in our assembly alone. And I think it's kind of cool to think that then our assembly is one of thousands of parts that make up the uh, Artemis mission. So once this thing is built, how do you test it? It has to work in the challenging environmental conditions of space, but how do you simulate those conditions here on Earth? Our next step is to go into our test lab to simulate the conditions of space and make sure that everything we've designed will operate properly in its real environment. Come towards me, come towards me, there you go. Okay, we're here in our test lab now. Uh, so our next step is we've designed this on Earth, but it has to work in space. So we need to simulate every environment that it's going to see uh, and be sure it performs correctly. 
So first step is this unit will go to vibration testing, which simulates the vibration of the rocket during launch. Then we'll go on to this fixture, which simulates uh, the thermal environment. Of course, it gets very cold and very hot. We're able to do both. And then we test it under the full range of input conditions. Everything from, you know, the most muscular astronaut down to deconditioned astronaut that's been in space for months or even, you know, a year. When we're all done with testing here, we will deliver this to the Orion program where it will be integrated with thousands of different pieces of equipment. And then they all get tested again at the spacecraft level. From prototype to manufacturing, assembly, and testing, that was really amazing, wasn't it? To see firsthand how a component of the Orion capsule is built, this has certainly been a highlight. I think we may need to get out of the studio more, John. What do you think? Absolutely. It's one thing to talk abstractly about the Artemis program, but today I think we saw how real this all is. It's not just ideas on paper. It is real components, real spacecraft, and hopefully it will result in this long-awaited return to the moon with Artemis III. So before we get back to Isabel and the lunar drill, I'm curious, on a personal level, what does working on this project mean to you? For, for me, I'm an engineer at heart, so I do love gearboxes, things with gears, anything with moving parts. But what really excites me about working in this industry and on Artemis in particular is, you know, I get to watch the launch on TV like everybody else. And I know that at the top of the rocket is this little piece of me that I've touched and put a little bit of sweat and tears into. And I find that endlessly exciting. Thank you, Andrew Maurer, for not only joining us, but honestly, for showing us around Honeybee. That was so cool to actually see where some of this space hardware is built and the iterative design process that gets to a final product that actually goes to space and is used by astronauts. Now, if that isn't enough for you, let's get back to Isabel King, a mechanical engineer at Honeybee Robotics, where she has helped develop a lunar drill. You know, part of what makes the Artemis mission special is how we will explore the lunar south pole, which is largely unexplored. Potential water ice in the craters could unlock the ability for drinking water or even the ability to make hydrogen fuels on the lunar surface. So, let's start there, Isabel. You mentioned it at the beginning of the show, but help our listeners understand how this mission contrasts with Apollo and the role lunar drilling can play in that. So during a shorter mission, like we did on Apollo, uh, you can really bring everything with you from Earth, so all the consumables that the astronauts need and everything else to support astronaut life. But when you are going to stay on the moon, it's, it starts to be impractical to bring everything from Earth. So what we really need to do is start to live off the land. We need to be able to harvest resources there and use them uh, to support human life. So the reason we're going to the South Pole is because we know that there's ice there and ice has a variety of different uses. So water in particular, of course, we think about life. So we can use it for drinking water. We can use it as a binding agent in construction. We can separate it into hydrogen and oxygen and turn that into rocket propellant um, and be able to explore deeper into space. So really having ice is foundational to being able to support life on the moon in a permanent way. The fact that there's ice on the moon really enables us to explore deeper in space in the future. And it's a super important resource and into enable us to develop the technologies to go even deeper into space. All right, we've got the drill on the table there. Uh, for our listeners, it's a, a shiny auger about a meter long with different spiraling patterns on the sides. So tell us about the drill, 
How does it work? What you're looking at here is our next generation Apollo drill. So the Honeybee uh, Artemis drill. So this is the drill head. And you can see it's got all these big buttons for the astronauts to use and it's handheld, but can also go on a stand for easy use. And over here, we've got all the different augers. Um, so if you look down any one of these auger tubes, you'll see that they're hollow and that's because it's a coring drill. And so what you do is you drill one meter into the ground at a time. And then what you can see here is that these actually connect together. And so the astronauts will screw them together to drill to depths down to three meters. The other important thing to test are the human factors elements. So actual people, astronauts are gonna be using this. So we had to test with actual people and we got to get feedback from actual astronauts. So that includes things like these big buttons, you know, how big is big enough when you're using these really big bulky gloves and making sure that it's both user friendly and intuitive, but also possible to do in the dark and with big gloves on. So I understand how important the discovery of water ice on the moon could be and, and a bit about how the drill actually works. Not enough to run it, but uh, enough to understand how it works. So let's get into how Artemis will build on Apollo. During Apollo, between 1969 and 72, astronauts brought back, what, about 842 pounds of lunar rocks, including core samples, pebbles, sand, and dust from the lunar surface. Six Apollo space flights returned 2,200 separate samples from six different exploration sites on the moon. From those samples, we learned a lot about the lunar surface. So how are we going to build on that with Artemis? Yeah, so on Artemis, we're going back to the moon and we're going to be creating a new version of the Apollo drill. So we take all the lessons that we learned from the Apollo drill, and we want to make it better. The key ways that we're going to make the drill better are we're going to make it easier to operate. Um, some astronauts actually had a lot of trouble getting these drills out of the ground. They sometimes got stuck. So we're going to be fixing a lot of those problems. So making, making it more automated and uh, a lot friendlier for the astronauts to use is super important. So with the coring technology, we're able to go three meters depth and that enables us to learn more about the subsurface and how things change as a function of depth, which if we're going to be living off the land on the moon, it's super important to know what's under there rather than just the surface. Because with remote sensing that we have right now with you know orbiters around the moon, we're able to see the surface pretty well. But drilling is really the only way to get at the subsurface. Once we remove the samples from the ground, it's really important to seal them up. And that has a lot to do with the fact that we're going to the South Pole this time. Like I said, we're really expecting ISIS to be there. So it's really important that we vacuum seal these. And that's both so that we can keep that sample uh, safe on its journey home and so that when we get it to Earth we're able to see exactly what was there, make sure it wasn't contaminated, but it's actually also for the astronauts health and safety. So there's some volatiles that we don't know what they are. So in addition to water ice we actually have things like hydrogen sulfide and maybe other things that we don't even know that we don't want the astronauts to be breathing. So it's important to make sure that the samples are sealed really tight in, in order to transport them home. So do we have any idea how that water ice could have gotten on the moon in the first place? Yeah, we have no idea where that ice came from. It could have been um, sourced from the moon. It could have come from asteroids and other things impacting the moon. And so just finding out the origin of that ice is really interesting. And it'll tell us more about how the solar system came to be because it's some of the oldest material in the solar system. And then, of course, also just knowing what's there is going to enable a lot of engineering development so that we can actually harvest this material and use it in a practical way. So we're drilling for samples on the moon, looking for resources, and just like on Earth, and even more so, resources are limited. Sometimes you hear that talked about in situ resource utilization, which basically means using the resources you have, in this case on the moon for lunar regolith, 
or our moon does. Help us to find the lunar regolith and what we might find in its chemical makeup that could be useful resources. Yeah, regolith is the word that we use to describe the lunar dust and soil. So lunar regolith is really rich in iron and titanium and silicon and oxygen. And these are all things that if we can break them apart from the regolith, then we can use them for construction materials. Um, you know, think about in-space 3D printers. If we're able to make materials on the moon, then we don't have to bring them from Earth. And that would be a huge, huge leg up in being able to develop a space economy and develop a base on the moon. Okay, we've already seen 3D printing once today. I could have stared at it all day, but we saw it once today in one of the labs here. But 3D printing on the moon, now that's over the top. We've got a lunar drill here. When is it planned to be used in the Artemis program? So in Artemis 1, we had a successful orbit around the moon. And in Artemis 2, we're going to be sending people in orbit around the moon. And then it's in Artemis 3 that we're actually going to have boots on the ground. We'll have folks that are actually going to be drilling and collecting these samples. Because fundamentally, that's a huge part of what, why we send astronauts to the moon, is so that we can have them actually collect samples, do geology, help us get these uh, samples that are going to be invaluable to engineering development and technology development here on Earth to then be able to send more people and build more infrastructure on the moon. This is such an exciting time to be working in space. I, there's so much happening. Um, we're really right on the cusp, I think, of being able to send people to space, to be permanently in space, and being a multi-planetary species, which will be very exciting and I think integral to the future. Thank you, Isabel King and Andrew Maurer, for joining us. Man, uh, really, who gets that opportunity to get an inside perspective on what it takes to design, manufacture, and test space hardware for the Artemis program? Well, we do, and that's why you listen to the Behind the Wings podcast. There were so many interesting aspects that I hadn't considered. I, honestly, I'm going to fess up. I loved the 3D printing. For, to stand in front of those printers and see them making things. I'm used to a, a printer making a copy of my football pool. I'm not used to the printer making things. And to see that happen in that setting was just absolutely amazing to me. John, what, what were your takeaways? I mean, I was impressed with the fact that this is different from Apollo. And when you talk about what are we going to do when we get there? Manufacturing, what kind of tools are we going to use? You know, these drills. I mean, what are we looking for? You know, we're looking for water and what's that's going to be able to do? You know, to sustain on life on the moon, we're going to have to have a capability to get H2O and be able to get water and use maybe even propulsion from that water that we go. So it really answers for me the question, what are we going to be doing different than Apollo? Well, that'll do it, folks. We hope you enjoyed episode 26 of the Behind the Wings podcast. We sure did. Thanks for listening. And be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. And don't forget, we've got new episodes coming out every other Monday. Make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and subscribe. And while you're at it, be sure to leave a review. It's the best way to get our show out there, and we greatly appreciate hearing from you. That does it, my friends. We'll see you next time right here on Behind the Wings.